So one of the things, if you're unaware uh, about being a pastor, you get a lot of questions about, you know, what do pastors do during the week? But one of the things that you do as a pastor is you get asked a lot of questions. Questions, questions, questions. It's like, I mean, I, I mean, as Paige and I, you know, move towards parenting, I'm sure we're going to be asking a lot of questions as well. But, but right now, uh, I get asked a ton of questions. And sometimes these questions have to do with, like, practical ministry things, right? Do we have half and half? What can you do about the women's restroom fan? What time are we going to start service? Do you know we're a couple minutes late? Who's going to be leading that event? How can I get plugged into a growth group, right? There's some of these nuts and bolts things that, that as a pastor, you get asked constantly. Some other questions are, are more deep and theological, right? Why did God allow this to happen? How can I go about forgiving that person? What should I do? What do you think God's will is for our church? And as a quick aside, like pastors love answering these questions. This is, this is primarily what we feel called to do in the world, right? Is to, to navigate some of these spiritual realities that you wrestle with in your life. But then there are questions that youth pastors get asked. <laughs> Can I get a ride home? <laughs> what are we going to do about that spill? Wait, you want us to eat that? Are you ever going to become a real pastor? <laughs> Can I get a ride home to you? <laughs> How far are we away? What do you do all week? Seriously, you want us to eat that? <laughs> right? There is, though, one question that I get asked with some regularity that always makes me pause. Um, and it's always, only ever asked to me uh, by, by people who don't know that I'm a pastor. Let me tell you a quick story. So on Friday, uh, some of you guys know I coached the JV soccer team over at San Marcos High School which got crushed by the Dons on Saturday, yesterday, so it was very frustrating. But, but on Friday, we, Friday night, we had a team dinner over at one of the family's houses, um, and they were very hospitable, very generous. And the hostess uh, and I were having a conversation. And, you know, you go through all of those sort of superficial types of things of like, yeah, how do you think the team's going to do, da 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 and then kind of moves to more personal things. And she comes to the question, the question that always gives me pause when it's asked of me, and this is it, what do you do? And it always, I'm always like anxious and nervous to answer the question, right? Like I'm a, I'm a pastor, but like in the back of my mind, I don't necessarily want to tell you that I'm a pastor. And so the, the conversation went like this, oh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm an associate pastor after my, my long sort of like three second pause. And her response was, well, where at? Coast Community Church. What kind of church is that? Looking back, at that was the moment in which the conversation went kind of awkward and weird. I should have just said, it's a Christian church. But instead, I like, overdid it, right? I just overdo it every time. Like, well, it's a Protestant Christian church. You're sort of typical evangelical church. And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, I don't know if that's what necessarily what I want to be associated with. And you like, say something, and then you got to walk it back, right? And so instead of just stopping, I like keep overdoing it. Well, labeling ourselves as evangelical church has a lot of connotations that I don't necessarily want to be associated with, but like our denomination has traditionally kind of fell in line with the evangelical, you know? And I'm like just digging myself into a deeper and deeper and deeper hole and blah, 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 blah. She heard a lot about the Nazarenes, right? And, and, and she kind of, it was really funny because she ended the conversation. She was like, so are you like basically trying to say you're a little bit more open-minded or, and I was like, I don't know. We're just a Christian church, you know. <laughs> but I realize, though, that there's, 
There's a certain set of ideas about Jesus and Christianity that, and the church in general that are floating out in the world, right? That I don't necessarily want to be associated with. I don't think Jesus wants to be associated with. I don't think represents the best of the Christian tradition has to offer, right? And I long and I yearn for people to know the Jesus that I know. I long and yearn for people to know the Christianity that I know, the church that I know, the pe- you people that sit in here that I know. And I don't necessarily want to be associated with these things, but it, it raises an incredibly important question that the church must ask itself. What do we want to be known for in the world? What do you long for Christians to be known for in our city? What, as a student who goes to our junior highs and high schools, campuses every day, what do you wish people knew about Christians on that campus? When you go to your jobs and your workplaces, what do you wish people knew, your coworkers knew, about Christianity and Christians and how it is that they live and choose to live their lives in the world? But fortunately, Jesus thought that this is an important question to ask himself, and he answers it for us. And it's where we're going to pick up here in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And if you want to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. At the end of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. Let's pray real quick. Jesus, our desire, our desire is to understand these words that you spoke 2,000 years ago and have long shaped in your people that have long directed the decisions that we make in our lives that have long given vision of what it is that the church should be. And our desire, Lord, is is that in the midst of this gathering, in the midst of kind of the reading and and, um, expositing of your word, that somehow in the midst of these very human activities, that your Holy Spirit would be illuminating truths, be shaping and forming character that we couldn't do without you in this gathering. So be here in this place. Let us have eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Jesus uses here two images to describe his disciples, salt and light. Before we jump straight into what 
what he's trying to communicate through the use of these images, I want us to kind of make two preliminary connections or see two things in the passage that are incredibly important for us to understand as we think about salt and light and what it means to be those in the world. The first thing is it's important for us to remember who Jesus is speaking to in this passage. If we look back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we read in verse 2 that Jesus' disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, although it is debated, my personal belief and conviction is that this sermon is directed to those who are his disciples. That's the primary audience to whom Jesus is speaking. Dallas Willard defines a disciple of Jesus as anyone who is learning from Jesus how to lead their life as he would lead their life if he were they. Or, like more simply, that is, learning to live my life the way Jesus would choose to live my life. This is what disciples do. This is what we all ought to be doing, is living our lives, the decisions and the circumstances that we, we find ourselves in and facing, and thinking to ourselves, what, what would Jesus do if he were me? As cliche as the WWJD movement is, that is essentially what a disciple is, is trying to live our lives as if Jesus was living our lives. And this is the audience of the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the character of a true disciple of his. The Beatitudes cast a grand vision for a way of life in the world. And that life looks very distinct from the world in which it is located. In a violent world, disciples are peacemakers. In a world that turns its head away from unpleasant sights, disciples mourn for the homeless, for the refugee, for the lost, and for the brokenhearted. In a world where people's intentions are directed by self-interest, the disciples are pure in heart. In a world where individualism reigns and life is about the self, disciples show mercy, giving of themselves to the world around them. The life of a disciple is meant to look much different from the world around it. This is a basic theme of the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is built on the assumption that the disciples of Jesus are different. And it issues us a call to be different and to maintain our differences in the world. One of the great temptations all Christians face and Christians have for the past 2,000 years face and forever will face until our Lord comes again is to, is to live lives that look almost indistinguishable from the world around us. Right? It is the temptation to want to look like the dominant culture that we exist in. The Christian life, the life of a disciple, though, is supposed to be lived as a counterculture to this world, as different, as distinct from it. Although it's possible for us to put up a sort of veneer of Christian living, right? Of like just doing the church thing. It's very easy to do that. I go to church, I do the growth group, I know the songs, I go to the concerts, I do all of these types of things. We must recognize that we do not serve God, ourselves, or the world by minimizing the differences that we're supposed to have with the world. The great preacher Thomas Long writes, the church that lives according to the vision expressed in the Beatitudes is a colony of the kingdom of heaven placed in the midst of an alien culture. A colony of the kingdom of God placed in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. These are the ones Jesus is describing as salt and light. Disciples live differently from the world around them. 
The second sort of preliminary observation I, I want us to notice here in Jesus' teaching is that he assumes a relationship between his disciples and the world. Though a disciple, and we might just broadly say the church, are different from the world, they are not apart from or withdrawn from the world. During Jesus' lifetime, there were a number of Jewish sects. And for my junior hires, that's S-E-C-T-S. <laughs> we would, might describe them as similar to our denominations that we have in our tradition. One of these sects was called the Essenes. The Essenes are popularly known in culture today for their uh, manuscripting of scriptures. So without a printing press, right, thousands of years ago, you would literally have to like, take your Bible here and in order to, to make a new copy, like hand write an entire copy of the Bible. And this community, this is part of what they did. And we know uh, one of the great, we know this because there's a great discovery, I believe in the 40s, of something that, that many of you may have known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Um, that are just the oldest manuscripts or copies of the Bible. Total side note, and I don't know why I'm going to say this, but whatever. I decided, like, I wanted to see when I was in seminary how long it would take to handwrite a copy of the Bible. And so I started with Genesis, and I think I stopped around chapter 12. And I was like, ah, it's not worth it. Use the technology. What are you doing here, dude? Come on. But these scenes were also known uh, for very strict observation of Jewish law, right? They, they were a monastic community. That is... They removed themselves from the, the city centers, and they live near the Dead Sea, hence the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason for this sort of move away from the broader culture around them was that they might live kind of strict observation of law in its purest form, right? In fact, they called themselves the sons of light. That is, they, they believe that this is what the people of God and, and all people, actually, were supposed to live this way. And in order to do it, we need to remain untainted from the world around us and go start our own city, our own community, somewhere else. And some scholars believe that Jesus may have had them in the back of his mind as he spoke these words, talking about his disciples being the light of the world, the true light of the world. You see, there's been a long tendency within the people of God and even within the Christian tradition to withdraw from the world around them, right? If one extreme is to look nearly indistinguishable from the world, the other extreme over here is to remove ourselves completely from it and so as to hold on to our distinctiveness. But Jesus pushes against both of these extremes and his descriptions of his disciples. They're both equally wrong. Now let me, let me just say that I understand the desire and longing to withdraw from the world. In fact, I think there, there absolutely is a place for it in the Christian life, right? We discover throughout the Gospels that in Jesus' own life and ministry, he'd withdraw from large crowds, he'd withdraw from the ministry, and he'd find a quiet place and he would pray. And this is essential to everything that he does. And we should, right, do this in our own lives as well. We should find moments and times in which we withdraw from the world and we spend time with God. But it's, you know, I'm also a proponent because, it, like, of retreat, you know? I don't know how many of you guys go on retreat. And this is why I wish that it wasn't just our students who would go on retreat every year. We go to summer camp, right? That's kind of like our retreat. But I wish our, the adults in our church as well had a space and a place in order to go on retreat. Right? In the 21st century, right, we need to slow down our lives, empty our calendars, 
and remind ourselves to stay attuned to God and his will in prayer. We do this in part in a small way each Sunday morning. We withdraw from the normal rhythms of our lives, from our normal neighborhoods, from our workplaces, in order to attune our hearts to God and to his word. But there's this really significant part, right, at the end of our worship service every single week. And, and you, may, you may be aware of it, or you may not be aware of it, that it happens each week. Is each week at the conclusion of our service, Pastor James comes forward and he gives what is known as a benediction or a blessing as we are sent back into the world, right? We all come and we gather, we receive the blessing of God, but then we're always sent back into the world. This is a significant practice of the life of the believer. As we come, withdraw, stay attuned to God, but then we're always sent back into the world. Uh, summer camp is starting to kind of ramp up in the planning of summer camp. I had some wonderful, delightful conversations about planning for summer camp um, this past week. Um, but when I reflect back on my own experiences of summer camp, one, it was awesome. We would go to Palm Springs, our youth group would, and we would stay in condos. And it's like the coolest vacation ever. And we had unlimited access to the water parks and we could, you know, go outside. It was, just, it was a madhouse. It was just absolute craziness. Um, and summer camp is filled with uh, significant moments, right? Some of you perhaps made a decision for faith at a camp. Uh, some of you may have made a renewal or, uh, of faith. Or maybe some of you guys had a significant summer camp romance one, one year that lasted a week or two afterwards. Which is a lot easier now. This is like one of the things we have to worry about with like cell phones and technology that they could stay connected so easily at, after summer camp. But there's a few things that I remember uh, about summer camp that were tremendously significant to me. I remember one year, it was, uh, I believe this was after my freshman year of high school. I remember the speaker, and I don't remember much, but I remember the speaker saying something, or he said this exact line. He said, Jesus doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. And there was like this moment in which I, I understood that Christians should stop like forcing people, forcing our morality on people and all of these things before they actually know Jesus. And that happened for me on retreat. I remember raising my hands. It, it might sound like little. I remember raising my hands in worship for the first time. It was this new expression of worship for me at summer camp. I remember this middle-aged, bald-headed white guy once doing this really intense performance of uh, uh, Samuel L. Lockridge. He's this old preacher, and he does this thing called That's My King. And it was the most beautiful, well-articulated description of Jesus that I ever heard in my life. And at least a few times a year, I print out that description of Jesus, and I remind myself how beautiful and how wonderful he is. And that happened to me when I was on retreat, withdrawn from the world. But I remember one year in particular, it was the end, it was my last summer camp, my, uh, in between my junior and senior year of high school, that my youth pastor, you know, gathered whatever 60 of us that were there together at camp, and he said, you know, this has been a wonderful camp. It's a mountaintop experience. That's a language that you often use, right? There's that sort of camp high thing. And I remember him saying in that moment that there is, the, he said, nothing grows at the tallest peaks of mountains. He said, if you go to the highest places, the highest mountains, nothing grows there. 
It's good to be there. But one of the things that you have to understand from this camp experience is that you got to go back down the mountain and grow. you got to go back down the mountain and you have to affect and change the world around you. Otherwise, this retreat, this withdrawing from the world was for naught. And this is supposed to be what we do as a church. We withdraw and then we are sent out as different people back into the world. The church is supposed to be this colony kingdom, distinct yet engaged with the world, not completely withdrawn, but kind of living and engaging with it. It raises this really important question that we have to ask ourselves. What good is it to be that in the world? What good is it to be this different yet engaged people of God that are kind of strange and kind of weird, but... Like, does it affect anything in the world? Like, does it do anything, or is this just for us? Is this the holy huddle that, that we're just kind of doing our thing for us, it makes us feel good? Is that the, the end goal of the Christian faith and all of the things that we do here in the church? Right? Like, what good is it to walk onto your school campuses each day and be different from your classmates, right? What good is it to enter your workplace each day a little different from your coworkers? What good is it to be a disciple of Jesus in Santa Barbara, California in 2017, does it affect the world around us at all? You see, the church, for all of its vision, right, in this world is overpowered and outnumbered and often overlooked, right? The, the church that Matthew's gospel is written to is representative of the experience of the church in many times and places. It's a small group trying with mixed results to live out a different kind of life, set down in the midst of a teeming, fast-changing culture that neither appreciates nor understands them. You see, the hardest part is not being a Christian for a day, but being faithful day after day after day. And maintaining confidence in what so often appears to be a losing cause, right? It's kind of how it feels sometimes as the church and as a Christian. Like, what are we doing? Does this, does this do anything in the world? But it's in the midst of these concerns that Jesus offers these two astounding images to describe the church. Jesus says to the church, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. The two images offer the church a twofold service in the world, each of the images kind of corresponding with a different component of that service. As theologian John Stott writes, the function salt has is largely negative. It prevents decay. The function of light is largely positive. It illuminates darkness. We must hold on to these two images, these two vocations that are the good the church is to do in the world. The first vocation that is the call to be salt in the world begins with the recognition that our world is broken. People are hurting. The world, in a word, is decaying. All right, salt in Jesus' day was one of its primary uses was as a preservative for raw meat to slow down and keep the decay from progressing further or faster or at all. You see, you need not be on Twitter or Facebook or watching the news long to know the issues that are facing our world. We are not, though, just mere victims of the brokenness that exists. We are active participants in the broken world. See, the rejection of God leads people to pursue their, their own distorted notions and perverted passions. 
If history shows us nothing else, it proves that when we are left to our own devices, humanity quickly runs amok of things. The shorthand way of saying this in the Christian tradition is that the world is tainted by sin. And individuals in this world struggle with sin. And the salty vocation of the church requires that the church do everything in its power to stop this process of sin in the world. To act as a sort of barricade to the spread of sin in the world. The Christian salt cannot remain idly by in its ecclesiastical salt shakers or in the, sh- in the church while the world decays around us. In the same way that salt is rubbed into the meat or into decaying meat to prevent its decay, so too the church must be rubbed into the surrounding community to keep it from going bad. When society goes bad, Christians tend to throw up their hands in pious horror and scold the non-Christian world Why are you so broken and sinful? But instead, shouldn't we reprimand ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat from going bad. It can't do anything but decay. The real question is, where is the salt? Where are the people that are standing up for the injustices that go on in our world? The world is broken. Okay, what are we doing about it? We are the church. We are the salt of the earth. Let me break down this other image just real quick. I think I have a lot to say that I'm not saying, but it's kind of, oh, just wait. (laughs) This is like stirring in my heart for months right here, this stuff that we're talking about. The second image that Jesus gives us here is that we're the light of the world. This one is the, the obvious metaphor, right? Is that the world is darkness and light shows an alternate way of being and living in the world a different way forward from our current situation. It says that the things that are don't have to always be that way. I'm just going to jump through what it is that I actually want to say. Let me say this. Um, There's a great example of Christian salt and light in the world in our town known as the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission. We talk about it occasionally, uh, one, because Rolf's here and he's the president, and it's cool to have a president of any kind in our church. But many of you have also been in, a, in a, a rescue mission graduation as well. The mission of the, the purpose of the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission, as best I know it, is to deal with addictions and homelessness. It is It recognizes that there's brokenness in the world, um, and it wants to be salt and light in those places. Um, I wasn't going to... I wasn't going to get this personal, but I'm going to get very personal because this has to be personal. And if I cry, forgive me. It has come to light recently. This is why you don't share personal things. That my brother is a drug addict. It's weird, because it's not my family, you know? But he, it's all sorts of things that happen because of that, you know? And it's this brokenness, and there's this sin in his life that's just wrecking him. And I look at the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission now in a very different light than I did two years ago, because I realize how messed up drug addiction is, and how it just messes with family systems and stuff. 
And we need organizations like that who say, we're going to deal with sin in the world in very practical ways. That sin is spreading in the world and it's breaking people's lives and it's destroying homes and it's messing up families. And somebody somewhere has to say, stop. Somebody somewhere, the church has to be that. We have to be the salt that says, brokenness is not going to go any further than this in this person's life and in our community and in our family. It's that there has to be that preserver, that thing that says no more sin. We're not going to allow this to affect this person's family anymore. We're not going to allow this to affect our community anymore. But it's more than just stopping it, right? One of the things that I understand that the Rescue Mission does so well is it says, we're not just going to stop this addiction that's going on in your life. We want to equip you for a different way of living. We want to show you an alternate way. We want to turn the lights on in the midst of the darkness in your life to live a different way moving forward. And in so many ways, this is what it means to be salt and light in the world. Is that we stop things from moving forward or progressing in people's lives and allow them to live a different life. And all of us are keenly aware, right, that there's sin that runs rampant in the world. And it is the church's job, it is our vocation to speak truth into life, into their lives, into the world, and offer them a different way forward. This is what we do as the church. You know, this is what we do a few years ago. Young Life is another ministry here in our church. And a few years ago, I was at a golf tournament, um, and, and they had a student that was a part of their ministry share testimony that kind of stuck with me over the past few years. She lives in a single-parent home, and that single parent is an alcoholic. And she wasn't connected at all with any, or, like, that's the only life that she knows. And this organization, this Christian group says, no, we are going to, in the midst of whatever is going on, however that's shaping your understanding of marriage and family and people and whatever it is, we are going to stop that. We're going to step in and be a new family to show you a different way forward in your life. This is what we're supposed to be doing as the church. This is why when there's young people in our churches that we know that come from, like, uh, like the kids I talked about my soccer team the other day, when we sit and they, they don't know their dads, they've never known their dads, that's going to shape and affect them, right? A broken family is going to shape and affect them for the rest of their lives. And so the church has to step into those places and say, no, we're going to be the spiritual fathers so that you can not allow that brokenness to seep further and further into your lives so that you can see that there's a different way forward. This is what we're supposed to be doing, church. This is what we do. This is what we're supposed to be doing. You see, salt and light, they have one thing in common, is that they give and expend themselves, and thus are the opposite of any and every kind of self-centered religiosity. Right? The church has to exist as the salt and light of the world. Otherwise, who is going to be doing those things? Whose vocation is it if it's not ours? Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In other words, there is no other group of people that are going to be doing these things in the world. And so we have to be that in the world. This is what we should be known for in the world, is that we see brokenness and we say, no, it stops there. And we're going to allow this to have a different future by pointing to Jesus. The question that 
I feel like I'm totally just like off of my sermon notes now. But this is a question that's been bothering me and stirring in my heart for several months. And it has to do with what, what, are the Christian, what are Christians in the church being known for? But it has to do with me in particular. This is a question that's been stirring in my heart, and I shared this with a youth group several weeks ago. The question was this. If I had no words, how would I demonstrate that I was a Christian? If I had zero words to articulate, because let me tell you, I can spin my words and make you sound like I'm the best Christian in the world. I went to seminary. I know all of them, right? I, that's what I'm trained in. And I could convince the world, I can convince the people that, you know, are on my soccer team and their parents that I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, come on, I'm a Christian for sure, all of these things, right? But the question is this, if I had to remove all of that, is there anything in my life that demonstrates that I follow Jesus? Is there anything in my life right now in which I am salt and light in the world? Because these are the things that Christians are in the world. And this is, this is what the church is supposed to be doing. This is what we're supposed to be doing each week, is discovering ways in which we can demonstrate our Christian beliefs without our words. Right? There's the famous saying, I preach the gospel at all times and sometimes I use words. Right? This is what we are supposed to be doing as the church, day in and day out, being salt and light in the world. What will Christians in the church be known for, though, in the world today? What are we known for? What are Christians known, Christians known for on your high school and junior high campuses? What if Christians were known in those places of living pure lives, avoiding the temptations of popularity, sex, drugs, gossip, and the list goes on and on and on? What if the Christians on those campuses were known to be friends of the friendless? What if Christians on those campuses were known for for defending those who are being bullied? What if Christians were known as the types of friends who actually heard and listened and to, to the people who were hurting and broken on those campuses? What would change in those places if the church was the church? But what about in our communities? What if Christians were known in the community of Santa Barbara where materialism and greed reigned supreme, right? That we were known as people who weren't accumulating as much stuff for ourselves, but we offered the world a different picture of what it looks like to live in the world. We actually gave everything away for the benefit of the world around us. What would happen if the church actually was the church in the world? Is this what we're desiring and longing to be, or we just want to have big congregations and services here and gatherings, right? Ah. It is like, ugh. I'm not even on track with my sermon at all, but Christian character, right, is described in the Beatitudes here, and the influence of that Christian character on the world is given to us in these two images, salt and light. Our character and influence, though they're related to one another, our influence in the world depends on our character. This is why it's so important for us to actually embody the Beatitudes and the bar for Christian character is set very, very high. And it's only by the power of God that we can develop it and become those things in the world. But when we do, the thing that we have to understand, the incentive for doing the hard work of being an actual Christian, right? Of being an actual disciple of Jesus, to actually being poor in spirit, to actually being a peacemaking people, for actually being salt and light in our community, the benefit of that 
is that we, we get the blessing of God on ourselves. We bring salvation to the world and we bring glory to God, according to Jesus here in this text. I, my, my prayer for our church over the past several months and for myself, and so I'm so pumped that we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, is that we would be what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. That we would actually become the disciples of Jesus in the world. Because I, I genuinely believe, church, that we will be a blessed church if we do that. I genuinely believe and I authentically believe that we'll bring salvation to the world. We can help people in the world. Like, we can actually do good in the world. And I, I actually believe that when we do these things, we, we bring glory to God, which is the primary reason why we exist to begin with. But we have to do the hard work of becoming these things in the world. <sighs> Sorry, I feel like I just like vomited all over our church. <laughs> but as I'm like, yeah, no, as but honestly, like as I'm reading these things, you know, I'm like, don't you wanna don't you wanna be this stuff? Don't we actually wanna be these things? And I don't I, it's like uh, maybe because I've been coaching too long, I'm like giving my pep talk like at halftime. <laughs> you know, or whatever, and, but it's like, like, don't we, don't we want to be this, like, sweet fragrance of the world around us? Like, don't you just not want to do the church thing anymore? Don't we want to, like, help my brother and all the people that we all know who struggle with sin? Like, don't we want to do these things? But we can only do it if we embody this character, and this has to be at the forefront of who we're becoming, because when we do, my brother gets help, you know? In a few moments, we're going to take communion. Um, I'll invite the worship team just to come up or whatever. But Jesus, in so many ways, embodies this stuff that, we're, that he talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount. He embodies the character, and he embodies the influence. And one of the things that I always pray every time I take communion, I'll let you do like inside of like when I kneel here, is I pray, Jesus, may I become what I eat right now. May I become broken for the sake of the world. They might find healing, right? May I become you in every way. The, the greatest demonstration of the Sermon on the Mount comes to us in Jesus' sacrificial giving of his life. And what we see at the end of that, right, is that when you give all of yourself completely, God is faithful, right, and does something new in the world. God is faithful even when we give of ourselves, and we trust that when we give of our lives entirely, that he will restore that giving of our lives. And so I pray, you know, that, that we as a church will become the body and person of Jesus in the world. Let me pray for us. God, our, our, our longing is to be that which you've called us to be. Our longing, God, is to be the salt and light in the world. And though we're small, we make great impact because we don't go at it alone. We go at it with your power and with your love, with your Holy Spirit, God. And, and so I, I pray, God, that as we, 
we dive into your word, we wouldn't just understand the Sermon on the Mount, that we would be the Sermon on the Mount in the world. But we recognize and we realize that we, we need your power, we need your strength, and we need your might to become what it is that you're calling us to be. And at the end of the day, God, it's, it's for a broken and hurting world, but it's for your glory. And so equip us, equip us, empower us, God, that we might give you all the glory that you're deserving of. It's the name of Jesus that I pray.